Welcome to the Evaluating Biopharma podcast, where we provide industry decision makers with insider access to veteran bioprocessing experts willing to pay it forward so you can leverage their knowledge, learn from their successes, and even avoid repeating their mistakes. I'd like to welcome Mike Kelly. Uh, he's Senior Vice President of CMC at Atsina Therapeutics. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Ben. Nice to be here. Uh, would you mind giving a brief bio for the audience? Sure. So as you said, I'm working at Asina Therapeutics currently. Uh, Asina is a startup company focusing on AAV gene therapy for uh, inherited retinal diseases, uh, ophthalmology, uh, 100%. Uh, prior to that, I've had a number of roles in smaller and larger companies uh, in lentivirus uh, and AAV gene therapy, as well as some ex vivo cell therapy work as well. Um, I sort of mirrored Jim's experience. I've been doing this for uh, since the mid-90s, um, so I've seen it uh, come and go a number of times. Um, but I've, I've, I've been in, in research, development, um, and CMC areas uh, throughout that time. Excellent. Thank you for that. So I wanted to start off at the beginning, thinking about a clear strategy. Uh, I wonder, um, you know, can you please explain for the audience how you'd recommend going about developing a strategy for make versus buy uh, decisions and why hope is not a viable strategy? <laughs> yeah. So um, Jim and Susan did a really nice job at explaining just how complicated what we do is. Mm. Uh, and obviously it's important uh, when we transition into the CMC realm um, that we understand how to do it, that we uh, understand the technology and how to apply technology and meet the regulatory expectations that hopefully will get us an approved uh, therapeutic. Um, just in general, you know, make versus buy is not unique to CMC. I mean, mm. every company there's no such thing as a, as a virtual company. Uh, everybody has to depend on service providers in some way, shape, or form. And so, therefore, every company in our space as a core competency has to have the tools uh, to do outsourcing uh, as well as insourcing um, operations. So it's really important that they know how to identify, how to evaluate, uh, and select vendors that are really well matched with those technical and operational needs um, and that for those that can really convert the techno uh, that, that Susan <laughs> very eloquently described into operational strategies, because it's really important. There's a number of very small companies using uh, outsourced services. It's really important that both parties come together to enable the rapid and efficient transition uh, into the clinic and eventually out of the clinic. And it's really important for all of these small companies to be successful, to do it in a, in a, in a cost-effective uh, way. So, yeah, I guess where I'd go next then is, do you have a quick mental rubric that you might use where you're thinking about um, identifying, evaluating, selecting vendors, and at what point you go from one column to the other, you know, make versus buy? Yeah. So, you know, obviously, um, most small companies don't have the option of building internal capability up front. That's a very significant investment, both in terms of dollars as well as time. So, obviously, leveraging the existing infrastructure that exists is really important. 
selecting those vendors is just as important. You know, I think we've come through a number of years uh, where the demand for outsourced services is just huge and certainly has outstripped the capability of that infrastructure. And so choosing who to work with, you know, I think you really need to understand how their experience matches your needs. I also think it's really important that you understand clearly what your needs are, because if you don't have a clear understanding, um, it's going to be difficult to make to make a good selection. I, I think there's a number of factors to consider. You know, obviously, every company has programs with schedules and expectations, but I think you really need to understand the fit between the, the sponsor and the service provider in terms of technical capability, operational capability, experience, management experience, how you work through problems. You know, there's a number of things that you have to consider. I think it's important to understand, number one, that you can't just hand it over to a CMO. You know, that's one of the hard things when you're when you're giving a, a program to, to, to a CMO is you're giving them essentially all of the control, but you still carry 100% of the accountability. So you've got to ask the questions, identify who can and who can't, uh, you know, it's, and not to, not to be disrespectful to CMOs, but they do a pretty good job at, at marketing and selling services. Um, obviously, that needs to be matched with operational capability. And I think that's where companies that are very stretched in terms of demand um, don't always have the ability to sort of meet the um, promises uh, around timeline and technical capability, uh, nor should we expect them to. So I think it's really important that we understand that as a sponsor, we own the process and we own the accountability and we need to leverage them uh, for their skills, but we can't depend on them just to give us the answer. Hmm. So, you know, I, I think it's complicated. I think you need to really understand um, what they can do for you, understand the risks associated with it, uh, understand where you can have misalignments and miscommunications. Um, I, you know, I think also just understanding that there's forums um, and environments where you can really have good conversations and good uh, escalation processes to make sure that everyone is is working in the same direction. Mm. I think that's a perfect segue too. So our next bullet, let's think about right-sizing. So it's possible and it frequently occurs that CMC investments can be overkill. So how would you go about ensuring that your investments deliver what they need to deliver, no more and no less, so that they do exactly what regulators want to see. So <laughs> that's interesting. So investing in CMC is a risk-based proactive activity, right? We have to do it early in order to be ready to meet program needs on time. One of the things that scares me is this idea that you're trying to get it just right. Um, because it's not always easy to predict what the expectations are going to be two, three years down the road. So this idea of getting it just right and not over-investing uh, is a risky proposition because if you get it wrong, you certainly don't want to end up in the wrong side of the line. Um, I, I think it's really important to understand the technical and regulatory expectations. And I think there are forums to get there. You know, I think scientific advice meetings are really important. It allows you to really propose your strategy and get feedback from regulators and understand what that what those expectations truly are. You know, in the last number of years, we've had significant improvements in technology. Uh, Jim and Susan talked all about that. We've also had a number of large pharmas come to the table and really help push CMC capability forward. 
But you know, in, in parallel to that, the bar is being raised. You know, we're seeing new guidance come out all the time, and I think the FDA and the the agencies in general are holding sponsors to a higher level, um, and this idea of of continuous improvement. So I think it's important that we don't come up short. I think it's if you're going to make a mistake, you're probably better to be a little over than a little under. Um, and I, but, but I think it's important to sort of keep an eye on where the field is, ask questions, find forums to keep up to date. Conferences, engagements like this can be helpful. Understand what the field is looking for and make sure that you don't come up light. Um, but I, overall, I think uh, it, it's the onus is on the sponsor to know what the needs are and make sure that you're ready uh, to meet those expectations. Mm, great. Now, can you recommend best practices for scalability considerations to transition from operations uh, or for, tr to transition operations from R&D to clinical? Yeah, so this is obviously um, a pretty big area for discussion. Um, I think it's important to recognize that if CMC are coming in to the R&D process late in the life cycle, it's too late. Uh, I think it's really important that CMC are engaged as a partner in the R&D process uh, and can really inform and educate in terms of what transitions are going to look like. You know, it's really important that the platforms and the analytics that are used to credential programs um, are not a mystery. And in an ideal scenario, you're not going to have different product quality um, and different analytical methods to, to support those decisions. You know, in an ideal scenario, uh, R&D would be using a, the, the platform methods, both for production and testing, that CMC will eventually uh, be putting in place. You know, that's that's not always easy to do because CMC is an evolving capability. But I think it's really important that you don't have comparability challenges. I mean, someone else, I think Jim might have mentioned this earlier, to make sure that you're not getting different results. Um, product comparability is important uh, all the way through the life cycle. Um, I, I think it's also important that you understand the impact of making changes uh, on, on uh, technical capability downstream. Even something as simple as the formulation that the research folks use, if it's different, you may get a different result. I mean, understanding what the right of administration needs are going to be and making sure that we're using the right tools just demystifies those transitions and comparability components. So I would say get the, the, the CMC process in place as early as possible, certainly no later than uh, the non-clinical studies that are using the credential of the program, but be a partner, be on the team and be in there early. Excellent, three great points. So are there then in your estimation, best ways to improve technology platforms and assay designs to better support operational strategy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think the starting point there is to understand what the platform needs to deliver and what improvements and what benefits you're trying to achieve. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that's, you know, it's it's very easy to to apply new technologies, but it's important to know what you're trying to achieve. You know, whether that's removing animal derived components or improve purity or improve yield or improve the accuracy and precision of your methods. You know, I think it's important to know what you're trying to achieve there. You know, one of, one of the things is it's never good enough. Um, and sometimes you have to make a decision on the timing of when you're ready to, to make a commitment. But I think, you know, all of this is, is, is really based on an understanding of what the process needs to deliver 
and what the product quality attributes are and understanding the CQAs of the process, understanding the, the, the CPPs and KPPs of your process that drive those performances. And I think looking at this idea of uh, design for manufacturability, knowing what a eventually you need to have in place in order to ensure robust operations. So, you know, I, I think technology for technology's sake is is probably a risk, but I think understanding the rationale for why you're making changes and have ways and means to measure the effectiveness of those, improve, of those improvements in the platform, uh, I think it will go a long way. Yeah, I think it's also important, one final point, is to make sure that Eventually, your 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 tools have to be validated, whether that's a process validation or an analytical validation. And I think it's important to recognize that you're building a capability that will fit that uh, validation need. Yeah, great point. Now, to get to all of these points uh, in the process as things mature, COGS, cost of goods sold, or an ever-present reality. Any thoughts come to mind on best ways of controlling COGS? Yeah, well, first of all, I think to control COGS, you have to understand what, what components make up COGS. So when, when a lot of people in CMC talk about COGS, they talk about the cost of goods manufactured. And that's certainly a big component of COGS, but COGS also includes storage and distribution and more importantly, licensing. So companies, when they license programs or license technologies, usually make royalty commitments as part of that. So that's all got to be considered in terms of the cost of goods sold. Um, it's also really important to understand what reimbursement strategies and reimbursement capabilities exist. So, you know, one of the challenges we're struggling with today is particularly with those high demand programs where we've got waste-based dosing and some patients require E15, E16 particles. That's a pretty expensive proposition. It's important to know that we can meet those um, costs which I, I don't think we can today, but to be commercially viable, we got to get there. You know, there's there's some easy things you can look at, like improving improving productivity, um, reducing the use or reliance on expensive materials, recycling expensive materials like chromatography columns. I think that they'll all get you so far, but I think ultimately you have to really look orthogonally at all the components that determine and drive cost, um, product yield cycle time in manufacturing suites. And again, going back to this make versus buy scenario, you know, typically um, it's less expensive to manufacture internally if you have a sustainable need for a supply of materials. You know, that's one of the things when you go back to your make versus buy strategies, you may decide for commercial that you want to internalize it because there's, there's, there's cost advantages to doing that. Um, but, you know, also understanding infrastructure, um, running manufacturing and testing facilities is expensive. The capacity utilization of those uh, of that infrastructure needs to be considered because if you're not leveraging it efficiently, you may be overpaying. And one last point, um, which I think, you know, is, is, is really important is products in cell and gene therapy that are administered one time there is a one-time sale. And so when we think about supply dynamics, we, we think a lot about the prevalence population and the incidence population. So if you've got a situation where you're meeting patient demand, there's no repeat supply. So we can model what we think it will take for an approved therapeutic to successfully 
catch up on patients um, that are in the prevalence population, but eventually the demand for those materials is going to go down. So understanding how you're going to transition to a discontinuation of supply and the impact that has on overhead, I think is important as well. You know, these are not typically the kind of things that we talk about in, in sort of early development. But I think when we think about transitioning to commercialization, um, a lot of the principles that are established based on biologics are based on a continuous supply of drug to patients, typically for their lifetime. Uh, obviously, the dynamics we have in, in one-time administration is, is changing that, and we need to be cognizant of that in our, in our approach. Mm-hmm. And I guess especially in cases where you're looking at rare and orphan diseases, whereby the prevalence could be matched or the demand matching could happen in the forecast model relatively quickly compared to, let's say, other disease states. Absolutely. I mean, you know, obviously we need to consider the adoption of these therapies, these novel therapies in those patient populations, but that's absolutely correct. Hmm. Hmm. Brilliant. Can you share any parting thoughts on building a commercially feasible program profile? Yeah, I mean, some of this is a little bit speculative, but obviously, you know, the question is what are the hallmarks of a commercially successful program? (laughs) You know, obviously, um, we need to be able to get reimbursed for drugs um, with an appropriate uh, business model at an appropriate margin. You know, companies need to be, compensated for their the risk taking and, and drug development in the first place. And that's difficult. You know, I think working with payers and understanding what reimbursement models exist uh, is, is an important um, component. I think it's also important to understand uh, the label that you get with drugs and how you design clinical studies to get a very maximal label. Uh, you certainly, especially in often in rare diseases, don't want to be um, getting a label that only allows you to treat a subset of those patients. So you really got to try to bring bring these programs forward to all all patients and also all territories, making sure that you've got a global view when you run these clinical trials um, in order to, to, to get a full advantage um, from these programs. Um, there's other financial components to think about, like reimbursement, you know, there's, everyone talks about the million dollar or another, I guess, the three and four million dollar gene therapy product. But there may be a scenario where we don't get those those drugs paid for uh, in, in a single payment. There may be annuity models where we get paid over a certain number of years based on maintaining the therapeutic benefit in patients. Uh, there's a number of things that you know I think we need to to work with, with payers on to understand how we get there. Um, but ultimately... Um, commercialization is it's going to look a lot like the biologics world, but with the with the the, the big difference that you're you're selling this product one time in the, in the life of a patient. At least that's what we hope. Um, it's also important that patients will adopt uh, and take these these drugs. You know, one of the things that we always think about on commercialization is how does how will the launch go? How will how will a new drug be adopted in the marketplace? Um, and sometimes, you know, people overestimate um, patients' need or desire to take a, a, a pretty new a new drug. Sometimes patients might say, well, I'm going to wait for five years because I'm not going to die. Uh, I want to see a little bit more data before I, I take this novel uh, approach. So there's there's some things around under, understanding that. I think that can can be enhanced by working with patient advocacy groups, understanding how to get 
communication and education to patients to understand the benefits of these drugs. But I think it's important that we design the studies to give ourselves uh, as much benefit and um, as much capability that allows payers to really reimburse appropriately. Mm. I, I don't think we're there today. You know, I think there's still a lot of work to be done because these are these are big numbers that we're talking about. Right. Yeah, good points there, Mike. We got a question that came in regarding COGS, going back to that. How does the generation of a producer cell line impact the evolving CMC for a program? So a producer cell line is just a different way of making a vector. Um, there's a, a hypothetical, maybe not hypothetical, but there is this, this um, concept that it's more scalable and more cost-effective. Um, I think ultimately it turns it, it, it turns into how many patient doses per batch can you make and how does that um, productivity impact the cost of goods. So if you've got a, a producer cell line that's producing at a very high level um, and a very robust level, I think there can be advantages. But I think it still comes down to what is the cost per dose and is there an advantage of, of doing that? I, I'm certainly familiar with some cell lines that have produced incredibly well. Um, I think there's also some some cell lines that maybe haven't really been that much better than transfection. Uh, but the other thing to consider is, is the producer cell line uh, available in a timely fashion? One of the challenges that we've faced in the past is it's taken multiple years to engineer and select these cell lines, and there's a, a cost ramification to that. But I mean, the hope is that a cell line will give us higher productivity and more robust um, production levels than conventional methods. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Thanks, Mike, for spending time with me here today and sharing your thoughts. Thank you to Jim, Susan, and Mike for their brilliant input today. And I think um, everyone in the audience would agree, truly some incredible and remarkable discussions and expertise on display here. And I really can't underscore that enough. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please visit www.evaluatingbiopharma.com to access the on-demand video and to download the summary article. You can also access the Evaluating Biopharma content archive, sign up for our newsletter, and register to attend an upcoming Evaluating Biopharma virtual networking event. Feedback or suggestions? We'd love to hear from you.